2: That's ChumbaCasino.com.
3: No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
2: Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for July 4th, 2014. Happy birthday, America. It's the You're a Facebook Lab Rat edition. I'm David the editor of Slate. I'm here in Washington, D.C. Today, we'll talk about the Supreme Court's Hobby Lobby decision, which delivers a smashing victory for conservatives. is this a disaster for reproductive rights for Obamacare, or is this a reasonable decision that that accommodates religion in a useful way? Then the preposterous, maddening, poisonous politics of immigration, in my view, we will discuss this. immigration is a symbol for all that is wrong and wicked in Washington these days, and then Facebook. Is conducting lots of devious little scientific experiments on you. They didn't tell you, but they're doing it. Should you care? Slate's chief political correspondent John Dickerson joins me in the very fetid and sweaty, or soon to be very fetid and sweaty, Slate DC studio. Hello, John.
3: Hello, David. Yeah, it's going It's been pretty fetid and sweaty outside
2: too. So we the entire city. We is mirror paid. the outside. We are yeah, right. outside inside, so it will be disgusting in here shortly. And then. Emily Bazelon.
0: It's not that and sweaty here. It's yeah. really nice. It's Amsterdam. Why, are you, are, you Why are you in
2: Amsterdam? Are you wearing orange, first of all? Are you uh, rooting no for... I orange,
0: although there has been much World Cup festivity that I have passed on by because I don't want to pretend I know what I'm talking about. Though I heard that the U.S. lost.
2: That's your best... That's what you've got. <laughs>
3: Really, you—you you, that reached Go you? Go to hell! That, Go that, to hell! That—that that, that made it—made uh, it over to where
2: you were. Transnational huh? citizen of no country. You're like, oh, I'm a cosmopolite. I don't care where I am. I'm in Amsterdam today. I don't care about the U.S. Oh, it's just the international world. We're all living together in why harmony. we have
0: to root for the U.S. Isn't there something good about having a sport that the U.S. is not so great at and other countries get to take the lead? Isn't that like one of the attractions of soccer?
2: Yeah. So isn't it fun to root for the U.S. because we are not the overdog and it's a chance for us to really shine in a in a sport where we're not expected to do well? And so you should, you should root for the U.S.? The our, One of our colleagues, I will not name him, but his wife... Uh, has been rooting against the U.S. in every game, which I think is just—it's just simply wrong. Like there's no I considered no that, but my
0: children got so mad at me, I had to just throw that idea out the window.
2: Why would you even consider that?
0: Well, it's not like active rude against. I was just feeling like, oh, isn't it nice that these other countries get to have this be their sport?
3: What a lovely patronizing view of other
2: countries. Just
3: pat them <laughs> on the head. They have <laughs> let them have their little so sport. They're, They're so nice. They but spell if you care things about differently. Soccer,
0: it's not patronizing. It's like go them.
2: So, Emily, are you stoned right now?
0: <laughs> no. <laughs> Based I on about the that, previous conversation, I had a and a glass of wine at dinner, and now I think maybe going back out to what I have discovered are called coffee shops. But actually, the coffee's at the cafes and the pot is at the coffee shop. So I could go back out afterward. I don't know. I'm considering it. You guys can give me advice by the end.
2: I know what our listeners want. The Supreme Court finished its term with a bang this week, giving a 5-4 to four victory to Hobby Lobby in its suit over Obamacare's contraceptive mandate. Court cast its ruling in narrow terms, as it always does when it wants to stick a wedge in for a bigger win later. The conservative majority found that closely held for-profit corporations, whatever those may be, could be exempted from the mandate that they provide certain kinds of contraceptive coverage to employees, including IUDs and Plan B, under a 1993 law, RIFRA, which is an acronym.
0: Religious for- Freedom Restoration Act. Yes.
2: Uh, The contraceptive mandate was not the, quote, least restrictive means of meeting the government interest in providing contraception. So Hobby Lobby gets to escape it. There are a number of fascinating and maddening issues about this. Um, What's a closely held firm?
0: Everybody, 90%.
2: What other religious objections to certain laws could be entertained and could trump the government interest? Does science matter? Are your beliefs about what contraception does uh, versus the facts about what they do? Does that – does your – belief trump the science? Why has contraception become such a hot-button issue when almost every American uses it and almost all of them also support it? What is with the deal with the idiocy of having your private employer cover your health coverage and make these personal decisions for you? And then the political implications of this decision, will they matter? So, Emily, let's start with the, just the basic Bazelon legal reasoning question. What was the legal reasoning of the majority? What, uh, what were you persuaded by?
0: Well, so the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, like you said, it was a bipartisan Congress that passed it in 1993, and they were upset about a previous Supreme Court decision that liberals and conservatives felt went too far in forcing people, persons was the word the law used, to follow laws that apply to everyone, even if those laws burden the exercise of religion. So Hobby Lobby comes in, first move they make is to say that persons in the law includes for-profit corporations, and then they say that they have religious beliefs as a company that are violated by paying for four forms of contraception that they see as causing abortion, the IUD and a couple versions of the morning after pill, and they threw one more thing in kind of late in the litigation. So the first question is is hobby lobby in fact entitled to any protection at all under this law and in previous cases the the supreme court had never ruled that a for profit corporation was what Congress intended to protect when they passed this Religious Freedom Act. Now, lo and behold, um, the conservatives think that, indeed, Congress did uh, did intend to include corporations. I don't think that's the easiest reading of the law. However, lots of people feel like this is a relatively close question. So then the next thing, once you're in the land of RIFRA and you're protected, the next question is, did the government have a compelling interest in putting coverage for contraception into Obamacare as part of the preventive health care package for women? Lots of evidence from the Institute of Medicine, which the Obama administration had asked to study the issue, that in fact contraception clearly benefits women's health. And this is the uncontroversial part that you alluded to earlier, right? That everybody uses contraception, everyone thinks it's part of how the world works. But when you limit the definition of the challenge forms of birth control to these supposed abortifacients, you kind of muddy the waters a little. And the Obama administration never stood up for the science behind treating the IUD and the morning-after pill as birth control rather than abortifacients. They just said, well, Hobby Lobby sincerely believes they cause abortion, and so we're not going to kind of lift that veil. I think that proved to be a big mistake in the litigation because that's... And the conservatives on the court can just accept that and move on. And in fact, Justice Alito's most, um, to me, disturbing move was to say, well, we'll assume for the purpose of argument the government had an interest in providing for contraception through health insurance, but... We're not going to say they really proved their case. And in fact, Alito then kind of cast aspersions on that whole notion. And that was the part of the opinion that made me just want to start screaming and ranting because it felt like such a misunderstanding of how women's health works and such a blow to women to to be um, criticizing and deriding that part of it. But that brings us to the last question here, which is, did the Obama administration use what the law calls the least restrictive means of... Accomplishing this goal. And the idea is that if the government's going to go around burdening people's religious freedom, well, they should use this quote, least restrictive means. I hate these legal tests. I think they get really silly. But when you're in the la- that land, it's relatively easy to say, no, there was another way. So Alito's kind of clever move here was to say, well, the Obama administration had already accepted churches and some nonprofit religious organizations. Why don't we just extend that accommodation to these poor, for-profit businesses that don't want to pay for this, which means you have conservatives crying for the government to have taxpayers spend more money on something that they had paid for in a different way. But never mind. That's the world that we're now in. The good news about the move that Alito made at the end was it appears that Congress can fix this problem, although there is also all this outstanding litigation from various nonprofits about whether this accommodation actually works the way they want it to, and Alito made it clear that he wasn't saying one way or the other to keep those cases alive. That's kind of the legal rationale behind all this, and then of course the question is, like, what happens next both legally and I think politically where does this go from here?
2: John, you were trying to interrupt that incredible well, it, yeah, array that, of words strung crazy. together.
0: Really. Yeah, yeah. If I stopped, I would never be able to pick it up again.
2: Right.
3: So the, one of the things that seems confusing to me in the coverage of this is that there is this split between everything that's contraception and the uh, what the Hobby Lobby people think are abortifacients. Was the, were the scientific tests that were done that made the case for why all contraception is more than just keeping you from having babies, that there are health, compelling health interests, had those addressed this specific smaller group? In other words, when the Obama administration didn't fight for that smaller group, would they have had evidence from the scientific studies that they could have marshaled?
0: not that they didn't fight for the smaller group. Their scientific findings show that the IUD in particular is enormously important. It's by far the best, most in terms of effectiveness method. There are some women who have various health conditions like diabetes that mean it's the only, they can't use hormonal birth control, so it's far and away the best choice. Um, And the morning after pill has a particular function that other kinds of contraception have, i.e. you can take it after you have sex instead of before. But what the Obama administration didn't challenge was the notion that these these methods cause abortion. That is basically an anti-science claim because most scientists believe, most of the research shows that these methods work by preventing the embryo from implanting in the first place, not by doing some other thing to the embryo that messes it up. And so now you're in this world of like, well, if you have a fertilized embryo and you prevented implantation is that an abortion? Most people don't think that is an abortion. All of what I just said—that science bit of it—is not part of the case because everyone just said, "Okay, Hobby Lobby believes this is abortion." That's and that's good enough. But are
2: you? But that's the the question: Is if I believe that that you know the moon is made of uh, cow dung, does that belief get privileged by the court? Is it? Is it? Does, did the? Do you believe that this court privileged that belief because many of the members of the court share it? Or do you believe they actually think any religious belief held you know, consistently and strongly is, is worthy of this?
0: I mean, maybe it's the first thing you said, but nobody made them really interrogate their rationale because the Obama administration never went in. It's nowhere in the brief does it say the IUD does not cause abortion, therefore this cannot be a sincerely held religious belief. Everyone just deferred to this idea that, well, if they think the company thinks so for its religious reasons, that's good enough, even if they have literally barely a shred of credible research to support their view.
3: Another question I had, which is on the 90%. like So So one of the figures I saw is that 90% of corporations are closely held under the definition that Alito used, which is why people – we should get to the question of scope and narrowness because you have some people saying, oh, this is a narrow decision, but others and, – and I know it, that goes beyond simply how many companies this affects. It goes to what future court actions might use this opening and make it larger. But for for the moment, if – if we think about 90% of the corporations might be able to take advantage of this, but 90% of the corporations aren't also sort of religiously founded the way Hobby Lobby is, right? So,
0: Well, look, I mean, 90% of the corporations are not going to go in and say we don't want to have health insurance that provides for birth control because... Birth control is not a high ticket item. They're not going to, this is a controversial stance. I mean, there are lots of calls for boycotting Hobby Lobby circulating right now. I'm not saying that I think that should happen or that it really will in any effective way, but this is not the moment if you're a secular company with a lot of, you know, non evangelical employees to go in and be like, oh, hey, guess what? We're jumping on this bandwagon. So I don't think anything like 90% of the companies are going to take advantage of this. I will note there were 70 other companies that were also suing. So it's not just Hobby Lobby. And that 90% of the so-called closely held corporations, if you go by the IRS definition, employ slightly over half of the people in the country. So, you know, we're going to have to see how many countries avail themselves of this. I don't Emily, think Emily like
3: sorry, hold amount. on. I was confused on the half. wait. 90% employs half the right, workers. Right, right. But, but, but of the 70, in other words, of the 90%, the number of of companies that are that have this super strong religious foundation is still pretty darn small.
0: I think that's true, but who knows? I mean, there's it's not like there's some list somewhere. I'm a for profit corporation, and by the way, I think that you know I'm all that my evangelical beliefs control my. We've never had this idea of a company before, so it's not like anyone was on record. Was not very many people.
2: So, how are we going to decide? each of these individual cases as the, you know, the restaurant founded by Jehovah's Witnesses and the diamond merchant founded by Orthodox Jews each of them brings a claim. Is it going to be – in each case, a judge has to say, yes, this meets a test or no, this doesn't meet a test? Or is there going to be a government agent that's going to be the, the least restrictive means agency determining this? I mean, how, what's the what's, – what, who, who is going to handle this can of worms? Who's going to
0: sort all of these worms out? The 70 out? companies that have sued are all going to win in their challenges to contraception. So all those cases are going to go to district courts, and the district courts are going to sit... But don't, not, they, have whether, don't, don't they have to check to see whether... Don't they have to check...
2: Don't they have to check to see whether these companies can claim a sincerely held religious belief? Doesn't someone have yeah, to investigate but that's that? Yeah, going to be
0: really hard to disprove, because there's no precedent now for actually, like, lifting the veil and going in. And in fact, there's a lot of language saying, oh, no, we don't do that. We don't go in and check to see if your religious belief is sincerely held. So they're going to all win.
3: All you have to do the is claim The question
0: it. is, what's going to happen to the company that, wants to try to not pay for some other aspect of health coverage. And this was an important narrowing aspect of the decision. They said really clearly, you can just feel this came from Justice Kennedy if you ask me, but the the majority opinion by Alito says, we are not saying that anyone can raise a religious freedom claim to not pay for vaccinations or not pay for for blood transfusions. So that's a good thing because we want people to keep getting vaccinations. But if you think about it from the point of view of contraception and women's health, it is so so infuriating, because for no good reason, women's health and contraception gets treated as not a real medical issue, as the same as these, all these other things, it, with, it, even though there's all this evidence behind the Obama administration's decision to cover it. That just sent me completely up the wall. So,
2: John, you're a reasonable man who, who always wants to look for compromise in the world. The original issue here, there's the, the Obama administration made an original accommodation for uh, religious entities to allow them to get around this contraceptive coverage, first of all, was that accommodation a, a mistake? Should they not have made it? Second of all, once they've made that accommodation, do you think that Hobby Lobby is a natural and indeed reasonable kind of outcome? That this is a way of of dealing with some some people's very strong beliefs that that America has a historic tradition of allowing yeah. people to to practice their religion as broadly as possible. And that's a, a way to reach that.
3: Right. So there, there is an accommodation that we've given throughout our history. RIFRA was itself an attempt to rebalance that accommodation after the, Emily, wasn't it the peyote law that RIFRA was supposed to be? so Peyote
0: use. It was, Indi- it was, right. it was use. Indians getting prosecuted for using peyote as part of a ritual. Actually, they weren't getting prosecuted. There was a guy who w- couldn't receive Social Security benefits, and he lost his case. That was what Congress was trying to rectify.
3: So we have this push and pull. And going back to the original Affordable Care Act, I think you have two possibilities. One, that the president and those who wrote it believe there should be this accommodation, who believe that you should carve out a place in the law for very small and specific cases where people who have uh, closely held religious views where in whatever way, their views weren't being trampled on. Uh, I think that's as a matter of belief. I think secondarily, it also was a huge red flag. In terms of it could have been a huge political fight. So you try and carve out the accommodation to get the bill passed saying, look, we're not doing anything with this bill that tramples on this, uh, on these existing sets of beliefs. And there were all kinds of ways in which the, the bill tried to we, sort of wend its way through the minefields. And this is just one of the ones it was trying to wend its way through. Had they not made that accommodation, we still would have been in the courts. I mean, Hobby Lobby wasn't going to like say – I mean, they were still going to do this, and the court was likely going to make its decision the way it did. I'm not sure that – I mean, they, may, they would have had a different rationale in Alito's. Alito wouldn't have been able to refer to the accommodation in the original legislation, but he would have referred to something else. I think one of the most interesting things here that somebody should take a long look at is the way in which the Affordable Care Act basically changed women's reproductive rights on both the positive and the negative scale. So on the one hand, you have all kinds of women who now have, have uh, access – To contraception. On the other hand, you have all of these legislatures that were brought in. There were nine fully Republican legislatures before the 2010 election, there were 21 after it a lot of those legislatures were brought into power because of the big backlash against the Affordable Care Act. Those 21 legislatures then imposed lots of restrictions on women's reprodu- reproductive rights, both specifically with respect to the Affordable Care Act, but then all kinds of other things. Um,
0: abortion. And all kinds of, uh,
3: mainly abortion. And, and so,
0: funding for family planning, too.
3: Precisely. And so had all those, those legislators not been voted into office as a backlash to the Affordable Care Act, how would the legislation have been different? How would the effect on abortion and the whole range of women's reproductive decisions have been different. And I think it would be a f- interesting to go through that whole that whole math equation because there's been a huge change in the way that pro-choice Efforts have been, I mean, sorry, pro life efforts have worked at the state level because of the wave of, of uh, victories right. in 2010 that were all a part of the backlash to their Well, and affordable that's care. really
0: interesting. I mean, I would say the quick and dirty math is 30 million women already have access to contraception being paid for who didn't. They're expecting up to 43 million, I think. And yet, You have abortion clinics closing throughout the South, as well as other parts of the country. And the real question of whether people just aren't going to lose any kind of viable access. So that's the balance. I mean, and then I guess, too, John, you think you can we can just completely blame those or attribute those Republican state house victories to backlash against Obamacare and nothing else?
3: Well, I think it was a huge driver. I think um, clearly, though, pro-life forces were trying to work through the state houses, for, and you know this better than anyone, long before 2010. So in other words, their strategy was to work through the state houses, and and I haven't done the math. So I could you could go down and see how many state houses would, would you... I mean, that was a wave election, and the wave was created by but, the Affordable
4: Care Act. But so. don't you
2: guys think, and I'm not sure we'll see it in 2014, but when this discussion around reproductive rights and choices is framed around abortion, it tends to Conservatives tend to benefit. When it's framed around contraception, and particularly the sexual behavior of women, it liberals it, benefit. It liberals benefit yeah. Because it is there's just something deplorable and and a little a little sick and pervy about the way some of these opponents of of extending contraceptive health talk about women's sexual behavior. Ah. And and we've seen, I mean, there's and you know these numbers better, John, but like single women are now fifty-six million. There are 56 million single women in the United States. They are overwhelmingly Democratic. There are many more of them than there were just, uh, you know, five, ten years ago. And they... They do not like the issue being discussed in the way it's been discussed.
3: I would add one other thing to your point there, which is quite right about the difference between if, the, if you fight it on the ground of abortion versus if you fight it on the ground of contraception. I think also if you, there's also a third ground if you fight it on the ground of religious liberty. So yeah. um, people don't want – I don't want the government meddling in my belief system is is a safer place to be than talking about you know sexual activity. And I think the – the claims made by some of the more, you know, um, incendiary members of the right who say, you know, your right to consequence free sex doesn't trump my my religious beliefs. I think if we start getting into a bedroom discussion, it becomes one of those where Republican lawmakers who are running for office start having to say things in front of microphones about sexual behavior that can lead to big kind of consuming gaffes.
2: All right. I want to take us to one last point from you, Emily, and then Wrap this. The last point I'm interested in from you is Justice Ginsburg indicated that she thinks this is a, a wedge kind of case. Certainly, a lot of the legal scholars on the left think this is a wedge kind of case. That in fact, Dahlia Lithwick, our our dear colleague who writes about the Supreme Court, made the case that this whole term could be seen as a kind of wedge term, where where the justices are planting seeds. Conservative justices are planting seeds for things that will come into bloom later. What is the broad end of the wedge? What's going to happen next time?
0: What's one is that one of the most interesting aspects of the wedge or the incrementalism of this term was how Justice Lido wrote the big two decisions. He wrote Hobby Lobby and he wrote Harris versus Quinn, the union decision. Both of which are take steps towards some much bigger move. Usually when we see the court engaged in that very um, interesting, perhaps sinister, and important activity. It is Chief Justice Roberts who is writing the opinion. So he has now gotten Alito on board for his approach, which is not the Scalia approach, right? Scalia yells and screams. You have no question about what his end goal is. He tries to accomplish as much of it as possible in each case he gets to write. But now we see Alito clearly joining Roberts over here in incrementalism land, which is really interesting. And if you worry about that, the real end goals of incrementalism will actually accomplish more for the right, then this is, you know, kind of a a big thing to have Alito now signed up for this mission. You know, the eventual issue, well, in the union case, it's easy. I mean, the next challenge is being invited, and it's from public employees who work clearly for the government not to have to pay union dues anymore. And then Hobby Lobby sets up a couple of things. Uh, It sets up potentially one of these businesses that, like the New Mexico photographers that doesn't want to provide service to gay people. Because if you have businesses protected by religious freedom, as Congress has defined it, then you're setting up the idea that businesses have the right to refuse to serve for religious reasons, which is we've never gone there in American law, right? You know, even during the civil rights era, no one ever said, oh, these businesses have a constitutional or a statutory right not to serve. So that's really interesting. And then the second bigger, well, not bigger, the second other question is the next abortion case, the next case in which you're talking about women's health, and will this connect up to that in some way? thats It's less clear of a connection to me, but it's that certainly is looming out there pretty soon.
2: All right. I just have to finish because I have to finish every discussion of this topic with the same point because it cannot be said too many times. (laughs) Do you know what the point I'm going to make is? Why don't we have single single payer? payer? Not not even single payer. I've given up on that. It's like why (laughs) is your employer the medium by which you receive your health care? It is lunacy. No one else does it. No one else in the world does it. It makes no sense. It causes all kinds of complexity that's totally stupid. It's just ridiculous
3: though as, as Ezra Klein points out and I know you weren't talking about single payer but it, this for some people have and some people said this is why there should be single payer he said you know the problem with single payer if you ever got it through is that then you have when single payer is controlled by republicans then in this case you have 30 million who might be getting contraception coverage if it were single payer under republicans that would go back down to zero So the question – Yeah,
2: and the single payer, you would never get the federal government single payer to pay for abortions, right? That would be difficult. But still, like the employers covering things, it's insane. That is all. So we don't have any sponsors this week. The reason we don't have sponsors is because we want to talk a little bit more about Slate Plus. Slate Plus, as you know, is this wonderful new membership program we have at Slate. It allows you to get all kinds of extras on Slate, no pagination, uh, special – slate features. You get to read Dear Prudence's column early, special chat with Dear Prudence, their their videos, their offers. And in particular, if you're a podcast listener, you get all our podcasts ad-free, and you also get bonus segments on podcasts, including on our show. And we've been doing lots of great bonus segments. And this week, because it's Supreme Court week, we're going to do another segment with Emily talking about the Harris v. Quinn case, or Quinn v. Harris, Harris Harris-Quinn. Quinn Harris, Harris v. Quinn Harris v. Quinn uh, labor union case. And so we're going to talk about that, uh, that we didn't have time to have put that in the main show, but it was a chance to put it and have a substantive discussion with Emily and who there is no better thing in the world if you're a GabFest listener than Emily Bazelon opining on, a, on the latest Supreme Court decision. So you can get uh, Slate Plus free for two weeks. So you can listen to this, that special segment for free. And you can also sign up uh, for an annual membership and get an extra discount if you use my special discount code. So you can go to slate.com slash plus, or you can email me, slate.com and get the best deal on Slate Plus. So please sign up. Immigration, what a mess. A year ago, a bipartisan Senate majority passed an immigration reform bill that would have offered a long but genuine path to citizenship for the many millions of undocumented immigrants who live here. It would have beefed up border security, increased visas for highly skilled workers that we want to come it would do, it would have done lots of things that most reasonable people believe need to be done for immigration and that almost every single person believes would help the economy significantly. The Republican House has sat on the bill for a year. This week, John Boehner apparently told the president in a private conversation that there would not be a vote on this bill as part of John Boehner's campaign. It's part of the Republicans' campaign to grind Washington to a complete halt. Mm -hmm. The president has responded with a promise of executive action on this action that would make it easier to to, uh, send back a lot of the child migrants. We have a child migrant crisis that's developing that would beef up border security, presumably also continue to protect kids, dream kids from punishment. John, Immigration, it seems to me, has become a symbol for all that's wrong. Here's a policy. Everyone knows the policy needs to be changed. It's in the entire country's interest for the policy to change. There's general consensus in the population about how the policy should change, yet the policy will not change. Right. There are all
3: kinds of other things where – the will of the people is at odds with the behavior of, of the lawmakers. Um, gun control. Gun control would be one. And then also from the Republican perspective, the numbers on gun control are quite high in terms of the number of people who want it. But I think in the Affordable Care Act, you would have said the same thing, which is that, that when you polled it at the time it was passing, the country was opposed to it. Uh, now, some were opposed to it because they thought it went too far, some because it hadn't gone far enough. But if you used public opinion as the, as the metric, that was true with the Affordable Care Act, too. I think what's
2: interesting about immigration different case but people were not opposed to the goals of the affordable care act if you if you tell them what the goals were people are not right but that people support matter. the goals of immigration Yeah but that reform. doesn't
3: The problem is that what happens is when you combine it into a bill that it falls apart. You can get people to buy into a bill, even lots of conservatives to buy into a bill that gives legal status, but only if it has certain border provisions. And so you can get – if you ask people about legal status, you can get a big number of lawmakers. It's just when you attach it to border provisions that certain ones don't think are strong enough, then the bill falls apart. But I think what – I guess what what I was trying to say earlier is the point of immigration is that you do – you do have – have more progress on it, and you have more forces engaged in it than on almost anything else. So when we talk about the failure of a big grand budget deal, there's not a whole lot of support in Republican ranks for, say, tax increases, and there's none for marginal tax increases. But here you had 13 senators vote for it last – Republican senators vote for it last summer. It was what you would ex- – what, what we sort of expect when we think about legislation. You got Democrats and Republicans to vote for something, and then it moved – it moved through to the next body. And you have – And
0: there it died, right. a long, slow, cold death.
3: And there it died. Now, the thing and, – and it died there basically because Republicans don't want to have a big fight about immigration with themselves in a year when they think they're going to retake the Senate. That's the main reason, at least as reported to me by Republican senators and congressmen. John Boehner said it was because they don't trust the president that they didn't do it. And that's true. They don't trust the president and they don't. They all, but they also don't trust those who are in the not-entrusting camp. They don't trust Republicans either. They didn't trust the Senate. That's why the House never brought up the Senate bill and never intended to, because that what the, those who are violently opposed to this but who might someday support comprehensive immigration reform want are guarantees that the border will be shut and locked and people will be kept out, and that internal security measures that include overstaying visas and all kinds of other things, checking on making sure corporations and companies of all sizes don't hire illegal. Legal workers That those are all super robust. Those people, it's, they don't trust the government to carry this out. But the, the, the notion that it was Barack Obama, lack of trust in Barack Obama, that was a reason, but it was probably reason seven, one through six is that they didn't want to have this
2: fight among themselves. And it's also that fundamentally they don't think the numbers make sense. That they don't give a damn about the numbers. That they don't well, have. They, they don't have. The a, yeah. Well, in individual house districts, which is where this gets decided, there is not a strong incentive for no. most House Republicans to support immigration reform. It doesn't win them any votes that they see in the near term. Well, it's, it's and it doesn't cost them anything. To do this, and so there's the, the the local disincentive is very profound. But I also think there's just just a profound. I think you give them so much more credit than they deserve with this idea. Oh, we just want border security. It's no. It's it's a an idea of complete and total opposition to a presidential agenda, and using that nihilism and objectionism to prevent anything from happening in yeah. government in government while. He's Eric, present. Eric very- Look, when you think about the things that motivate a House member, are they thinking more about Eric Cantor
3: losing or not liking the president? They're thinking more about Eric Cantor losing. Eric Cantor didn't lose because he was Obama's best friend. He lost because he didn't stick to his district and his, the grassroots killed him. And the issue on which they killed him, there were several, but the first one was immigration. When you talk to House members and you talk to people in House leadership, when they talk about what worries these members, what they say is, yes, the Chamber of Commerce is beating us up about this. Yes, the evangelicals are beating us up about this. But those two inst- those two groups can't create a primary opponent that can vote these guys out. They don't mention Barack Obama is not in the conversation. The, what they're worried about is the grassroots rising up and kicking him out of office. John, that is gi-
4: John. That's giving them. So, I, I'm not. It's saying not giving that, them credit. Not, it's what's happening. I'm not saying you that they don't. I'm, I'm not saying that they imagine,
3: don't make that argument. You can but just imagine they whatever just, you
4: want. I'm just, talking but, about what actually
2: I is know, the case. I know, but John, the kind of disin- The fact is that we've had a Republican House, which for now, what, how many years are into the Obama presidency are we? Six years has given him essentially zero votes on any. Two things can be true. Matters zero both. So (laughs) two things can be true. It's true that they certainly have a tactical, political reasons for wanting to oppose these issues. I don't gainsay that. But as a larger matter, the immigration fight reflects the kind of nihilism and destruction that the Republicans are willing to to use in politics. For, for gain. There's, so there's, there's a not reason. a discussion. There's not a discussion so, within the Republican House about the benefit of the, the-
3: – There absolutely is a discussion. That's why it passed through the Senate with 13 Senate Republicans voting for it. What other measure got that – that is this – charged, got that kind of Republican support. They're not doing it because they love the president. John McCain does not love the president. Lindsey Graham does not love the president. Bob Corker does not love the president. They did this because they recognize there are larger reasons to do this. When you talk to House members who've been trying to get this through, Republican House members, they talk about their future. They talk about the fact that the Republican Party can't win presidential campaigns if they don't pick up Hispanic voters. They have a very real understanding of what the Chamber of Commerce is doing and what money they spend on campaigns. And the kind of air cover they get from the Chamber of Commerce, who has listed this as its, like, number—well, not number one, but close to its number one priority. Those are all things that weigh heavily on their minds. This is not pure nihilism. It's just It just ain't. Now, there are plenty of places where they don't like the president. And clearly, one of the reasons the president well, strategically didn't embrace immigration reform publicly is because House and Senate leaders said, if you touch this— you're going to lose votes because anything you support, our members won't like. But that wasn't what was driving the bus on
2: this. Well, John, if so, if that's the case that you have a that you have a House Republicans, where there's plenty of Republicans who, or some number of Republicans who do want this bill, and there's certainly an overwhelming majority of Democrats who would vote for this bill. That means there's a majority of members of this Congress who would vote for this bill. John Boehner has chosen not to schedule a vote for this bill. They've chosen not to bring a vote, which would allow this to pass and become law. Right. They have chosen that. They've chosen that, That's even like, though yeah, there's
4: a majority that has So how is that them not themselves? nihilistic?
3: Sorry, let Emily, who's been listening, answer.
0: No, it's okay. Just that John explained, they don't want to have a fight with themselves in an election year. That seems like a perfectly unsurprising political reality, right? Along with the reality that they're having a split over whether the short- or long-term demographics of losing the the Latino vote forever versus letting in lots of Latinos who will never vote for them ever. That's their other kind of electoral big looming question here, right?
2: So one of the things that's happening, John, is that the president is going to take some executive action unilaterally. It's not exactly clear what he's going to do, but there's some indications. And John Boehner is making noises that the the House is sick and tired of the president taking unilateral action. And he's going to they're thinking of litigation against the president. And, he, and the president was like, so sue me. Is there actually going to be litigation?
3: So in July, we'll find out. The president, the, Boehner said he will drop a bill in July that will have a uh, the particulars of where they think the president has overreached and gone beyond his executive authority. A lot of a it will be- A bill as
0: opposed to a lawsuit? How do you pass it? Oh, you pass They have, the have to pass the overreach? bill to
3: do the lawsuit. They have to pass the bill to get the lawsuit. But they won't proceed. be able to pass it through the Senate. No, but I think they- it, it's
0: unc- They could have standing anyway? I think huh. they might have standing know. anyway,
3: but I also think they might not because obviously it would never get through the Senate. This is largely a stunt, though. It, the, though the belief is closely held, which is they think the president on- you know, basically, exempting portions of the Affordable Care Act has overstepped his bounds that you can't just change legislation willy nilly that's been passed, uh, so we 'll see what he actually what they actually try to argue because we don 't have a lawsuit in front of us the, What Boehner is trying to do though is um, with the Affordable Care Act no longer juicing people the way it, it juicing Republicans who are going to vote in an off-year election, uh, a non-presidential year election, not juicing it the way that it had before. They want to take on the president again and milk the anger people have with the president. And so they're making this case about overreach. And they'll add to that what the president did in response to the death of immigration reform, which has been dead all year, as we talked about and wrote about, because of the forces we were just talking about within the Republican Party. The president said, well, I'm going I'm to do this. I'm going to work by executive order. But there's not that much he can do. He can redirect money f- that goes to immigration uh, efforts in the interior part of the country and help with these courts and the, and the flying of these kids on the border to other courts in California that are able to adjudicate them and send them back home. And he can do a few tiny little things by executive order. Wait but a minute. There's not he has
0: deported two million people. He could stop deporting a lot of people.
3: He doesn't want to stop doing that.
0: I, well, that's because he's trying to appear tough on immigration so he can impress the Republicans about, you know, how much he means border control to get a bill passed. I mean, or maybe he really does believe we should throw all these people out of the country, but it's not true that he doesn't have that much power. He could really come well, I mean, deportation. It would have a huge effect. He
3: doesn't have that much power to do any of the stuff that he believes should be legislatively done. Right, like pass the
2: citizenship. So, Emily, I want to actually close this topic by talking about one of the particulars of this, which is that we have this just heartbreaking and strange child immigration crisis where there have been tens and tens of thousands of Latin American kids who are making their way into the country illegally. Many are Mexican, but now increasingly they're Central American. There are 50,000, I believe, kids being held in makeshift detention in this country because we don't exactly know what to do with them If you're Mexican and you get caught, I think it's fairly – there there are procedures in place where you can kick a kid who's Mexican. If you don't
0: get very far, that's true. We have this weird sort of quasi-second border for the Mexicans.
2: But if you're Central American, you get a lot more due process. You can't just be thrown out of the country. I found myself actually literally crying and turning off an NPR story the other day because it was just too excruciating about a five-year-old, a five-year-old who's made his way, you know, with a coyote up here and is alone and what the hell. But what should we do? I'm asking you guys this as parents, as human beings. What should we do with these children who get here?
0: Yeah. Oh, God. I mean, I think they all should have hearings and basically, particularly if they were trying to unite with family here, we should just send them to their family. I do think that there's this um, very moving but also ironic way in which all these Central American families are kind of calling the United States on some kind of bet, where the 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 word, as I understand it, it's going back to Central America, is that if you get here, you get a permiso to stay if you're a child. And all that means is that you get a hearing. But I guess just that separate hearing or there have been enough cases of people who have stayed have created this confusion that there's somehow some more automatic right of legal residency for children, which is not true. I have to say that I don't fundamentally really understand the sending away of small children on such a treacherous and dangerous journey, except if you had someone to meet them here, at least that would make it a little bit different. But it's really very fundamentally confusing to me why exactly this is happening.
3: Why they're coming?
0: Yeah. I mean, I just can't. Imagine thinking it would be so much better here for a small child to come without their parents. I mean, I, you know, if you're coming to meet an aunt or a grandmother, then I guess that's the bargain people make and they think yes. they'll get to stay. And, I mean, frankly, I think those kids should be allowed to stay. But, that, you know, the problem is that it's always easy to say things like that. And in the end, do you really believe in open borders? I mean, open borders seem to me like they are never going to work. And so I'm not actually sure what the end game of what I'm saying is. I'm having a kind of knee-jerk, compassionate response that maybe is not very realistic.
1: And
3: I think that's part of what the deportations are about, which is that you don't want to create... I mean, in some ways, they do believe in the magnet idea. which is, is, And in this case, the magnet is being... It's a false one. I mean, so my understanding is these kids are coming for two reasons. Some are escaping violence and horrible domestic issues, which make them. And I don't know. I don't understand this very well, but makes them eligible to stay under sort of UN. Persecution grounds. Well, now
0: we, you're talking about petitions for asylum and the question of what you have to show to get to stay right. for asylum, and uh, you know, personal domestic violence is not a grounds for asylum. For no,
3: women. no, no, so no, he didn't of, mean, no, no. No, mean to I mean, mean that. I meant I gang violence. yeah violence. And, and that, yeah, it depends. Kind of,
0: I mean, you, asylum claims are tricky. You have to. They have to be tied to the yeah, politics of, of so, the place.
3: One other thing I was going to say is, if the, what if the parent or aunt or whatever is here illegally?
0: Yeah, right. I know. What if? I mean, right. And and even what I said earlier, you know, every story one hears of a child, one wants to that child to be able to have the best possible outcome. But that's not necessarily going to work in the world we live in in any kind of systematic way.
2: So, Emily, you're kind of a you're tough on this, which is that the consequences of making ourselves a magnet of being open to this are too drastic and dire down the road because you would just instead of having 50,000, you have 500,000 kids like this, that you actually have to be harsh right now and send them back to Guatemala City and San Salvador and to Tegucigalpa.
0: It's too easy to forget that very real possibility that we have these responses to this to kids that are not actually entirely rational. What do you think?
2: I think that what I articulated as being your reasoning is kind of right as much as I I find it I mean I find it unimaginable and heartbreaking, and i guess I guess well, it's sort of if you can find do I think like if you could find a parent or aunt- a kid arrives undocumented, detained, and the government could find someone who's here illegally. should we find that person who's here illegally and give them the kid and not say anything about it? Probably, I think I could live with that as like a closing your eyes, but the government's never going to do that so hmm. Really, well, I think we probably should make, make ourselves not a magnet, and that means being pretty harsh. And I, I, I mean it kills – when you hear about these kids, like it makes you cry. Well, that's what's so gross about the political failure is that this is this is all a part of that. We have
3: no system for dealing with this in any way, one way or the other. Uh, I don't mean just – the, the
0: other I don't thing to to we point out to, is that the Obama administration put in place a policy which said that – People with family ties in the United States should be the, have low priority for being deported. In other words, basically, we're not going to come after them unless there's some other really good reason, like they're serious criminals. And they have not necessarily been implementing that. I'm not, I mean, you know, then you could argue that the kids who come here who have family ties should be able to stay for that reason. I don't know. So hard.
2: So hard. Okay. Let's move on to our next topic. It's much easier. It's a lot easier. Facebook got in trouble this week when a Facebook researcher published a study in a scientific journal about how Facebook had manipulated the news feeds of 600,000 Facebook customers to see whether receiving more negative news caused you to write more negative posts. and, And on the flip side, whether receiving more positive news from your friends caused you to write more positive posts. And it, you know, the results were pretty boring, which was that yes, that had a slight effect: positive created more positivity, negative created more negativity. It wasn't a huge effect, but it was it was there. The controversy erupted over the fact that it turned out that Facebook was conducting emotionally manipulative research on us, its users, without
0: asking permission. Without
2: asking permission, except without asking specific permission, yeah, except oh, in a, like please. a terms without of service where it but says the finest fine yeah. print permission. Yeah, so okay, but so. <laughs> I think we can posit that this is not quite like the Tuskegee experiment, right? No. This is not inoculating children with diseases and studying them. This is uh, this is not Mengele. This is pretty minor stuff. But, John, should you be bothered that Facebook is doing this to you?
3: Yeah, I have a difficult re- re- reaction to this because on the one hand – I think it would be irresistible if I was at Facebook to try and do these experiments. I mean what a great data set you have. You have 1.5 billion people and you can just – the the stuff you can try out is so fascinating to see how people would react and behave because we've both se- – we've all seen in our own social media lives the way in which all kinds of curious behaviors rise to the surface and, and people say and do s- super interesting things. I am um, – absolutely obsessed with humans of new york the instagram feed and what that tells us about mankind anyway so i'm i can see how the evil geniuses at facebook who've done other things that have been sort of sneaky and and underhanded with with users i can understand their um and then i was thinking well uh, so what's the real harm here i mean you've been basically duped but when you sign up for facebook and and twitter i feel like you're kind of signing up to be duped a little bit i feel like you're signing up to be kind of lab ratted. And that's part of a larger thing we do, which is we give away our privacy in all kinds of ways we don't even know about. And we agree to things, because we want to like post pictures of our uh, holiday party and and have our friends see it. And the price for that is that you sometimes get duped. Um, So it was hard for me to kind of get exercised about this. But I feel like it's the kind of thing that somebody could explain to me why I should be exercised, and then I would agree with them 100%. (laughs)
0: <laughs> Somebody well,
3: explain that. Why I don't
2: think I can because I,
0: I can only explain the hyped up version of how the story played out. I really want to understand how this became a story because the way I think the answer is that someone decided this study showed Facebook emotionally manipulating people to make them sadder. Right? And that is, I can't really understand how we get from the actual study to there. And, because I'm hung up on this really initial premise, which is that if you post fewer positive words on Facebook, that means you're sadder. I just don't see how the, that necessarily one follows from the other. Like, so what? It just, I, the idea that the words you choose to use on Facebook tell us something about your larger emotional state just seems like, yeah, you're reflecting the fact that other people aren't being quite as, like, prideful and irritating. So then you're less prideful and irritating.
2: The other problem is, of course, we know, and those of us who work for digital media companies practice this, we know that Facebook manipulates us all the time for commercial purposes. So there's the example much cited is Google, that Google tested 41 different shades of blue when it was testing a particular shade of blue to see how well it performed.
0: And maybe that made everybody depressed a lot of Yeah, the way yeah I got bluer. I'm change. blue. Yeah, no, I'm bluer.
2: <laughs> and Slate, certainly, we we test things, not for the purpose of emotional manipulation, but certainly to see, do people respond to A more than B? I mean, there's an entire industry of A-B testing. Do you respond to A more than B? And A can be almost anything, and B, you know, the, the, the variable you can be testing can be Almost anything, and Facebook, of course, is manipulating things all the time to it, the the only problem here was that it Published it as a scientific paper. If it hadn't published it as a scientific paper, no one would have said boo. It's simply Which this, is, of course, depressing
0: because then the lesson for Facebook is go ahead, do whatever right. you want. Just don't tell anyone about that. Just don't, don't tell it anyone about an tell exactly. us exactly. what you're doing, in which case we will know even less about this black box. Surely their reaction internally to all of this kerfluffle is oh my God, how did we ever authorize this as something we were going to publish? Who, whose dumb idea was that? Well, and let's make sure never to do it again.
3: I'm making this up, but it, I, I leapt to this conclusion. Which means, of course, it must be right, which is that they wanted to do this because they wanted to knock back the theory that that Facebook made you blue right. made you because you were seeing everybody having these rock and good times. Right. And Facebook's whole point in life is to have everybody go out and brag about how great they are so that everybody else will go sign up and brag about how great they are, that it's sort of funded on like
2: public narcissism. Right. And also, actually, this raises an interesting point. This is probably like the cigarette company science. Who knows what other research they did where they're not publishing the results?
0: Absolutely. So, right. so that's a,
2: <laughs> Right, exactly. Like the other pheno- – I mean, there is this phenomenon, the, the phenomenon anecdotally of Instagram envy because everyone – you look at people's Instagram feeds. I don't because I don't have an Instagram account. But one looks at people's Instagram feeds and you're immediately struck by, oh, their their children are so beautiful and look at those the, the cake she made and they've gone on vacation in such a nice place and – And you think their life is better than yours. And I wonder, is is Facebook testing that to show that, in fact, Instagram doesn't make you unhappier? I don't know. You know what I want to know? Are they going to publish that if they do?
3: Uh, what's interesting too to me about those studies and that feeling is that I don't – when I see people's like off on their vacations, I don't have that reaction. I don't think like, oh, their life is – I just – and I wonder how many of us that's our natural reaction. One thing that struck me about Instagram is – and it would be great if somebody would chart this. But the number of – like the selfie is a thing we all know about that. But I always thought the selfie was like a pretty rare thing people did. Like, what? there are people on Instagram that are the entire Instagram is selfies of
2: them. Um, it's them. I mean, like, I was outraged. Hannah, who
3: are these Hannah people? Hannah did an
2: event last night. Hana interviewed Joan Rivers at Sixth and I last night, my wife. And she did a great conversation with her. And there was time for questions. First question, a 22-year-old young woman gets up and says, I, you're such a hero of mine. I, Mike, I don't really have a question. I just want to take a selfie with you. So this woman literally interrupts. A presentation in front of eight hundred people to walk on stage and get a freaking selfie with Joan Rivers. I mean well, how how egomaniacal and lost is that? Well, That's it, crazy. I- could, and people cheer.
0: It's just selfie-obsessed, I would say. It's like a souvenir, right? It's like you're bagging a piece. Yeah, but,
2: uh, yeah, but okay, do it on your own time. Why are you I'm taking with everyone you, I'm
0: else's with time? You. i mean, so, the level of obsession seems a little much.
3: I couldn't agree more, and you've charted new territory there for me because I wasn't even talking about that. I'm talking about people who just take pictures of themselves in rel- doing relatively mundane things. Like, you know... Without a celebrity in the house. Social
0: media in general, people sharing mundanity, is that a word? That is what so much social media is.
3: Yeah, that's uh, surely true. But there's something about the picture of yourself being the constant. uh, Yes, somebody talking about what they had for lunch, which I've always thought, if it's the Donner Party, you want to know what they had for lunch. But um, there's a chance I'm interested in what somebody has for lunch. The (laughs) 9,000th photograph of this person, like on their couch, just seems to me to be Really
2: uh, strange. We've gone totally off topic. Do
4: we any,
0: really I, have. Clearly we had some feelings about social media. We needed to vent, and Facebook gave us a way to do part that. Thank that, you, Facebook.
2: Part of it is that I think everyone really hates and distrust Facebook. So if it turned out that Google had done this, people would been like, "Yeah, it's okay. That's a great." But problem. everyone hates Facebook. <laughs>
0: Google, they would have been like, okay, and now where can you track me next? What other piece of data can we give you?
3: But they hate Facebook because this is not the first time this has happened, right? They've been tweaking the privacy things. They've been, you know, you always feel like they're, it's the used cars salesman experience, which is you feel like you got in the car and then wait like you right. said, this was going to work, right. and now it's not working. And... Yes,
0: absolutely. Although I really feel like this was a strange one to have be the straw that broke the camel's back, because as, as we just unpacked, it doesn't actually seem like, if you understand what Facebook normally does, to have been really any difference. Although now that we pointed out that maybe they only published the study because it proved an argument they wanted to make, it seems more right. Deviant. No,
2: you 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 could only want them to do it if they were going to publish all the studies I do. Let's go on to cocktail chatter. When Facebook is studying you. Emily Bazelon. Now, Emily Bazelon, you're at a. What, what is your coffee? Your coffee house chatter when you're my getting when you're getting started, baked after the show. What are you going <laughs> to talk <coffee> about?
0: <laughs> I was going to chatter about something I did today, which I could not have taken a selfie. Which was I really almost fell off my bike like five times today, as I was riding around a bike in Amsterdam that someone lent me. And what I discovered was. So remember some months ago we talked about bikes and whether you have to obey traffic laws when you're biking. And I am pretty contemptuous of traffic laws when I'm biking. Guess what? That's because I'm the only one biking when I'm biking. It turns out when you're in a place where everyone is biking, you better obey every single traffic law because you are going to either run into someone, fall off, or get run over by a moped, which really, really almost happened to me twice. It was a total revelation to be in a place that's all set up for bikes with bike paths everywhere and realized that it was both very wonderful and totally constraining in how I could ride my bike
2: that's a very interesting insight thank you John Dickerson. are you
0: humoring me are you pandering no
2: I'm totally I'm I'm very interested I'm thinking about my own behavior and I re- I realize that exactly that exactly I, I understand exactly where you're coming from <laughs> and I would like to experience that of living in a a utopia filled with people biking everywhere. <laughs>
0: Do you... Also, one more thing. It's really weird when you are biking next to someone, and then, like, you all you have to stop the same traffic light. You keep seeing them, which that never happens to me on my bike. And in a car, you don't think about it. But there they are again, the same dad with his baguette and his daughter. Anyway. Um, uh, <laughs> you can tell I didn't really get to talk to anyone for several hours today. How...
3: Uh... Oh my God! It's just gone completely out of my mind. What the question I was going to ask you? Once I saw the dad with his daughter and uh, this idyllic uh, world you've, you've gone to, I've totally forgotten it. I'm, I wish I'd. John's got remember. John. John. Oh, John. here's a question for da- for you both of you. Do you disobey the laws of the road yes. more on the bike than yes. in the
2: car?
0: Oh my God! Oh my like God! A million yes. times yeah. more. Oh
2: yeah. The thing that John is looking at now scares me. Yeah. It uh, really scares it? me about this chatter. Well, Just do it. Get it out of the yeah. way. It's got like a hundred boxes on so, it. So well the there chart. is
3: uh it's a. It, I guess it's a chatter about how great Wikipedia is, but it's a um but it's really about a poll that came out this week from Quinnipiac did about ranking presidents. And it's according to this poll, thirty three percent of voters think that the current president is the worst since nineteen forty five. And that's a plurality, and so he's More bad than anyone else. The first thing to know about this, if you've heard about it, is this is a totally meaningless number. This tells us nothing about history or the future or the past or anything. It tells us about today, which is that the president is unpopular. He's more unpopular than he is popular. But putting it in a historical context is really basically garbage. Why? Um, well, because this reflects the fact the President is unpopular right now, if you look at somebody like truman 's the best example where Truman leaves office is incredibly unpopular, but then over the course of time, history and remember this is a poll asking people to put put presidents in historical context, history is much more favorable to truman than it than it was at the time we've We talked about kennedy who still comes who comes out very well in this poll in terms of people 's public perceptions, but I think Kennedy certainly has gone through a real reevaluation since he was assassinated. And so if you want to think about presidents and their place in history, which I is my favorite thing in the world and what this chatter is ultimately about, taking polls in the real time is silly. And both Truman who said that the real you know, the real rendering will be done when I'm dead, and George Bush said the same thing. And that's true. And so we shouldn't like Pretend it isn't true by asking a poll question that's going to get a lot of people talking. But one thing that is useful about this poll and all of these rankings of presidents is that it allows you to have a conversation because they are always comparing apples and oranges, you know, um, but it's a frame through which you can have this conversation, which I enjoy having, which is what makes presidents good why are they good if they're bad is it their fault or is it the congress that they were faced with we have the most partisan situation in congress that we've had in the modern age we also have a movement in the conservative uh, party or not in the conservative party but in the republican party of conservatives that is special and I w- and different than in 1994 and so with all of that unique circumstance When you evaluate this president, how does that play in his historical evaluation? And that's an interesting, I think, question. Anyway, if you are interested in these kinds of things, Wikipedia page on presidential rankings is just wonderful in the way that it's the actual page is historical rankings of presidents of the United States. And on it is a treasure trove of information, but there is this lovely chart of all of the presidents and how they have fared in the rankings from historians since 1948. And they get colors. And the green, And if you're blue, you're in great shape. So Washington is just solid blue. And then the fun is that if you look at Millard, basically, there was a huge dark period during Millard Fillmore, Franklin Pierce, and James Buchanan, all basically before the Civil War, where every historian consistently since 1948 has ranked those three presidents in the worst tier. And then, of course, they all love Lincoln. It's a great way to kind of look at our history and our presidents in a kind of fun graphical form. And I love the fact that it exists because somebody has patiently taken the time to uh, go through it all and plug in all the numbers and all the values.
2: It is actually surprisingly interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Despite
0: Despite despite the pitch.
2: (laughs) My chatter. Willa Paskin, our TV critic at Slate, wrote a great article this week about a TV show I had never heard of called Srugim, S R U G I M, which is an Israeli TV show from 2008 and I was like, why are we writing about an Israeli TV show from 2008? She said, well, this is the best you show saw the on light, TV. So, to so speak, I started the I went kippah, Yeah, I went perhaps. to watch it on Amazon, It's on Amazon and Hulu, and this is a show about the dating habits of orthodox Jews in Jerusalem. And it's a fictional show. It's not a reality show. But it's about it's watching five young Orthodox Jews, attractive, you know, three women and two men as they date. It's sort of like sex in the city, but there's no sex or friends, but there's no coffee shop. Actually, there's a coffee shop. And it's wonderful. It is. I've watched a couple episodes. All I want to do is watch watch more episodes of it. So Shrugim or Shrugim, if you want. Uh, <laughs> that's I know you're saying I'm scoffing.
3: No, I'm not. I'm not. I'm, I'm once again... In awe of the breadth of both reading and watching of television, like I mean, I it was a it was a vast cultural ascension for our house to have watched a, 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 like a U.S. soccer match in terms of cultural you know progress.
2: Speaking of U.S. soccer matches, I'm gonna do the credits. So someone someone challenged me to a credits this week, so I had to deliver.
0: David, you have to do a soccer credit. Let's hear it.
2: Yes. This can going to be my bad British accent. What we've seen today is nothing
4: less than extraordinary display on the pitch by this GabFest side. Again, they've proved themselves one of the remarkable teams in this most remarkable FIFA World Cup, facing a powerful German side, a squad to the brim with Champions League players and cup winners. The GabFest has displayed astonishing flair, boldness in attack, courage and defense. And now, with just a minute to go before overtime, the GabFest has drawn level with Germany, a trip to semifinals within its grasp. Its show page, Slate.com slash GabFest, has been iron-willed at the back, linking brilliantly to what we talked about today. The show page passes back to the Twitter feed at slate gabfest, which has been acrobatic and resolute in goal, a long clearance from the keeper, as GabFest look for one last chance to win in regulation. Facebook.com slash GabFest wins the head over Bastian Schweinsteiger. The ball falls to the email address GabFest at Slate.com. Thomas Müller, whose goal gave Germany an early lead in this match, closes in on the email address, who passes to iTunes, which got the equalizer in the 89th minute. iTunes searches for Slate Political Gabfest in the iTunes store and subscribes and leaves a comment. My comment on the Slate Political Gabfest today, simply extraordinary. A revelation. Five stars. iTunes passes to producer Mike Vuolo out on the right flank. Vuolo sends a lovely through ball to the captain, the veteran Andy Bowers. Executive producer of Slate podcasts. Just a few seconds left in injury time before we go to overtime. Bowers driven to the corner by Philip Lahm. Bowers nowhere to go. Bowers lashes across through the six-yard box to intern Max Tawny. Tawny volleys it past a frozen Manuel Neuer. Goal! Max Tawny, the Gabfest leads two to one. The referee's blown the final whistle. The Gabfest has defeated the mighty Germans. Tawny, winning his first cap for the Gabfest today, scores an extraordinary goal to send the Gabfest to the semifinals against Brazil. For Emily Bazelon
2: and John Dickerson, I'm Tim Howard.
1: (laughs) It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash.